Praise the Lord. Let's read down through chapter 1. We're doing a series just on, I believe, at least as far as I know, on chapter 1. There's so much in here. This is one of the richest chapters in the Bible. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Notice there it is again, the riches of his grace, the glory of his grace. Verse 8, which he made to abound or lavished upon us in all wisdom and prudence and understanding, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, which is where we are now, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him, that's in Christ, in him we also have obtained an inheritance. And we looked at that before having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore also, after having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would know three things that are listed here. One, what is the hope of his calling? Number two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the exceeding greatness of the power displayed towards us according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Amen. Well, we've, I'm not going to go back over some of the things we've talked about, or we'll get bogged down in those again, which is a good thing to be bogged down in. But we're looking here as at a prayer that he prayed, and he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this is what he's been praying for the church at Ephesus, so this is something that we can pray for the church here at, at Faith Christian Center, of which, of course, you're a part. That the Lord, verse 17, the number one, that the God of our Father, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The only things we can know about God are what He reveals to us. You can't figure God out with your mind. You can't get an encyclopedia. You can't get enough concordances and, 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 and commentaries and all those studies and have them tell you what God is like because that's man's wisdom, man's interpretation of God. The only way you can truly know what God is like because God is unknowable unless God reveals himself to you. And God, the method that God has chosen to reveal himself to us is primarily through this book. And then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. 
And so Paul is praying, and you can ask for revelation. In fact, you need to ask for God to open the eyes of your understanding. This is something I prayed over me, over my wife and our family, and now over you. I've been praying it over us for years. And I find the more I pray it, the more it happens. And things that although I've been walking with the Lord for 36, 37 years, I've been in the ministry 20-some years, I've preached I don't know how many thousands of sermons and many of them in the book of Ephesians. I've read this book so many times, I know so much of it by heart. But there's still things that jump out of me. There's still things about God that reveals to me. And I've just become focused. God, I want to know what you're like. I pray every morning. God, show me what you're like. I want to know what you're like. I, I know what people think. I know, especially when you have experienced a loss like we have here or some other situation happens. People come up with their own ideas of why God did this and why God did this, but those are man's ideas. I want to know from God what he wants me to know about him. So we need a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. There are a number of places where Paul prays that. And then he talks about and that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you know what the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints. And this is what we began to look at last time. You have an inheritance. You have an inheritance. You have an inheritance. I had a relative die a number of years ago and love him dearly. But one of my first thoughts was, and I know I was, I was an heir, is, okay, come on, don't be that carnal. I mean, don't be that spiritual. How much? You know, I'm going to receive something. And the Bible says that we have an inheritance from God. Well, doesn't that make sense? We're his children. The children ought to have an inheritance. And an inheritance implies that there's something that you don't have now that you're going to receive from somebody else because someone died. Something you didn't earn, something you didn't make on your own, something that's being left to you by somebody who's passed on, something that you did not earn, but they may have earned it and they may have inherited it. Well, we have an inheritance that comes to us by God, and it comes because somebody died, and the one that died is Jesus. Jesus died to give us an inheritance. Isn't that amazing? He's the only begotten Son of God, leaves heaven, leaves that exalted place, comes to earth, takes on this flesh, and until we get to heaven, we're going to have no idea what a downgrade that was. You know, we fly on airplanes, and we want to get an upgrade to go to first class, you know, the general pay for. Well, this is a downgrade. He was in the first class of the first classes. He was in glory, and he downgraded to the lowest level you could get. To take on human flesh and to walk among us and to get among people that are among sin, walk in a world that's controlled by the God of this world, the devil, his, his enemy. And he did all this, and then he not only walked among us, but then he goes to the cross is nailed to that, takes our sin upon him, the punishment. He then goes into hell and he is tormented by the devil for about three days until God raises him from the dead. And he did all of that so that the one that was the only begotten son could take his sonship and share it with you and me. He's the firstborn now of many brethren. That's what the love of God is like. The love of God does not hold on to what it has, but it says, I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to let go of it so you can have what I have. He let go of his only sonship, suffered all that he suffered so that he could share that sonship with you and me so that he could share his inheritance with us. Wow. An inheritance. I want to talk about this tonight because we need to have 
a godly perspective. The interesting thing about how God works everything out is I had gotten to this point about two weeks ago, the last Wednesday night that I preached on, on Ephesians. And then we went on vacation and come back, and I kind of forgot with everything else exactly where I was. And I had already put some thoughts together for the eulogy for the service today, and it was on the blessed hope that we have. And then I picked up my notes last night to see where I was, and it was on the same subject, the same scriptures. And I'm thinking, well, that means I'm going to do it twice in one day. Well, that's okay. But the way the service panned out this morning, I never got to this. So I'm going to, I mean, I, I talked about it, but I never got to the scriptures. So I'm going to get to it tonight. The re- turn with me to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. We have an inheritance. And the reason why this is so important is because most Christians today, at least in the, in the United States that I've known of, and that includes most of us, we live our life with a perspective that, oh yeah, we know there's a heaven. I, I know there's a heaven, and you know, I really believe that when I die, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to go there. But we spend almost no time thinking about it. Most of our time is consumed with, what am I going to, how I'm getting ahead in this life, surviving, or whatever your goal is in this life, getting through this life. We've been talking about having a, a purpose, and on, su- on Sunday mornings, and so many Christians, like so many non-Christians, don't have a purpose. Their purpose is to get through the day. Get up today, go through the day, go to bed, go to sleep, get up tomorrow, and do the same thing tomorrow, and there was no goal, no purpose in mind, no meaning in mind. But there's a meaning that a Christian has. There's a goal that a Christian has. There's a purpose that a Christian has that is infinitely beyond this life. And although we're to live this life here with all our, live it with gusto, live it with all we got, we've got to do it with the perspective that this is not our home. This is not our hope. And the Apostle Paul was able to go through the things that he went through. And you ought to read sometimes, if you think you're having a bad day, if you think you've had a rough walk since you got saved, you ought to see some of the things he went through, not for doing things wrong, but for doing what he was supposed to do. He didn't end up in a Philippian jail because he mouthed off at somebody. He ended up in a Philippian jail for preaching the gospel for what he was supposed to do. But his, he, was, he was always triumphant. So he's in jail at midnight with Silas. And, what they, and there it says they were in the inner jail. And the jails in those days were not like the jails we have today. There were no civil rights movement. There were no laws that protected prisoners. I mean, they were dungeons cut out of stone with water running down there, no lights, no, no light at all, no sanitation facilities, and other little things running around down in there where that was their natural home. And they're chained in stocks, their feet in their hands. And at midnight, which is the darkest hour, they start singing praises to God. It's in, it's in Acts chapter 16. What would do that? What would cause them to do that? I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to think, oh my God, I'm doing what you've called me to do, and this is what I've ended up with? Where, where's the Cadillac? <laughs> where's, where's, the, all the, where's all the, you know, where's the, all the blessings? Where's all the rewards? Where's, this is what I get? But I began to understand that in order for the God to get done his will, there's an opponent in this world, Satan. And to get the gospel out and to get God's will done often God has to take his own children and put them in situations that seem difficult because God's trying to reach people that he can't reach any other way. If Paul didn't go to Philippi, if Paul didn't go to Corinth, 
If Paul didn't go to Athens, if Paul didn't go through much of the known world, we wouldn't have two-thirds of the New Testament. Most of us wouldn't be here if Paul wasn't willing to sit in a Philippian jail. But why could he do that with that attitude? Because Paul had a perspective on his life that was the same as God's perspective. His hope, his confidence, his drive was not based on anything in this world, but it was on the next world. It was on the real world. And as I began to approach a birthday this year that's somewhat significant, that implies when I was a lot younger that you're getting old. It's amazing how that that barrier or that mark moves as you get closer to it. Oh, that person's old. I said, how old are they? They're only a few years older than I am. Now, I don't feel old. I feel young. I feel as good as I've ever done before. But my perspective's changed. Because as I began to start feeling, talking about getting old and feeling, you know, so you talk about it, you start feeling it. And God began to speak to me. He said, son, you've got the wrong attitude. For a Christian, time is a matter of eternity. It's not a matter of 30, 60, 100, you know, 80, 70, whatever years. It's a matter of eternity. You're going to live forever. This is not your home. This is your assignment. And then I began to open my eyes to some things in, in Hebrews. And this is what we're going to take a look at. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 8. This was read today. And I've talked about this before. I touched on it last time. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go. This, is a, this chapter follows the end of chapter 10, which is a great revelation, um, where, Paul talk, where the writer of Hebrews talks about not throwing away your confidence. You have great need of endurance. Look at it, verse 36 of chapter 10. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, after you've done the will of God, after you've done the will of God, not before you've done the will of God, after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Those who have been made just, those who have been made righteous, those who have come to Christ, not are just saved by faith, but we shall live by faith. Now if anyone draws back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to destruction, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. And then Paul, or writer of Hebrews explains, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. We talked about this last time. Faith is a, is a spiritual set of eyes that allows you to see into the spirit realm and know that that is so real even though your senses can't tell it. We judge what's real in our natural lives by the evidence our senses give us. You're confident that that chair is real because you can feel it. You're confident that, that I'm here and talking to you because you can see me with your eyes and you can hear me with your ears. So your senses provide evidence that that chair is really there. Your senses provide evidence that I am really here and your, 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 your nose will provide evidence in your eyes that these flowers are really here. i get some of that out there so you can smell it. So what our senses do in this life is give us evidence that it's what we're seeing is real. What faith does is faith serves the same purpose for the spirit realm that your five natural senses cannot see or detect. 
So faith is the substance, just like my touching is the substance in this realm. Faith is the substance of things you can't see and of the evidence of things hoped for and of evidence of things that you can't see. So what faith does is allows you to walk in this realm with absolute confidence that what God says about that realm is so real, you can act here as if you're already there. Which is why Paul's not stopped by chains. Paul was not stopped by circumstances going against him. He was not stopped by the fact that they tried to stone him to death in Derby. He was not stopped. Nothing could stop him. Why? Because his eyes were not on this world. And that's what this is really all about. Yes, we can use faith to receive other promises God has made to us. Healing for our body, provision for our families, direction, all those things. Anything God has promised to you, it's received through faith. But the greatest purpose of faith, the underlying foundational purpose of faith, is so we can walk in this foreign land with absolute confidence in that realm that God has promised us. And I've used this example before, but it just, to me it just, it's so real. And I, I, I've not researched this, but I remember years ago being told that John D. Rockefeller, who was the founder of the state creator of Standard Oil, became the richest man in the world at one point. And his mother was a, was a devout Christian and she trained him to tithe. In fact, at one point on his deathbed, he, tried to, he thought he was dying. He tried to give everything away. And the more he gave away, the more he got. And he eventually was healed and, and decided to, to, get out, to get rid of polio. So he decided to give money to start a drive for polio. So he laid on Park Avenue a mile's worth of dimes uh, and began the, the March of Dimes for polio. Rockefeller did that with his own dimes for a mile. So he would do things like that. But what he did to train his children, because he realized that I started with nothing and I made all this, and I want them to have the same character experience that I had, not just automatically inherit something. So he took every one of his children and made them work in one of his plants under a different name at the lowest possible position. So they would start in whatever it was, whether it was in the janitorial service, whatever the lowest position was, they were in that under a different name. And the only person in that plant that knew who they really were was the plant manager, and he was sworn to secrecy. I love that because imagine that you're little Nelson, you're young Nelson, a teenager, and you're down there pushing a broom with all the other young men that are down doing menial things. And you've got a locker that says Jones or Smith on it, and you get your lunch pack out, and you've got to sit down, and you have your lunch, you know, your whatever they gave you for lunch, you know, and you go put it back in there. Of course, when you leave at the end of the day, you're not going where everybody else is going. You're going back to the home of the guy that owns it all. But not only that, you've got in the back of your mind, while you have to do some very dirty, menial things, you know this is not your future. You know that, yeah, i got to do it now because I'm, oh, this is good. i got to do this now because I'm learning some things. I'm developing some character. I'm going through some things that are training me and preparing me. But I know this is not my ultimate destiny. I know that when I'm 30 years old or 40 years old, I'm not going to be down here pushing a broom. Or I might not, may not, maybe, I, maybe I advanced to a secondary supervisor of this area of the plant. No, I know somewhere down the road, somewhere down the road, I'm going to be the owner of it all. 
So I'll do what I got to do now because I'm here here developing things in my life because my father loves me enough. Oh, this is good. My father loves me enough to develop in me the character and the experience and the training that I need in order to take over a greater responsibility. I got to do the same thing all the other guys are doing. I got to push that broom. I got to take this uniform off. I got to go punch my clock like everybody. I got to do what everybody else is. But I know somehow inside, I'm not just anybody here doing it. My father owns the plant. And my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In the Old Testament, God says, you really think I need you? You think if I'm hungry, I'm going to ask you to feed me? Don't you know I own everything? I own all the cattle. So I don't have to go to Outback and find if I can get a steak. That's not exactly in there that way. So this is what Hebrews is talking about. So let's go down and read some of this with that background. Go over to chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, as using these men as examples and women as examples of people that learn to walk by faith. But Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place where he was to receive an inheritance. And that inheritance was uh, Palestine, where Israel is now. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelled in a land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he was waiting for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So he went out in obedience to God because God had a land that God was sending him to. And very often in the scriptures, God has multiple levels of promises and multiple levels of meaning. So you're going to see where it says they didn't receive the promises and they received some promises. There's an immediate promise they received, which was the land God promised to them, which was Palestine, and Abraham got there. But Abraham also had in the back of his mind, in the future, that there was something else that God had for him. And so the significance of this is that they dwelt in tents. And you've heard me say this before, but it's just so profound to me. A tent gives you a message. When you pitch that tent, when you settle in this area and you pitch these tents, and they were not just, you know, like a pup tent. They were large tents with poles and they were their house. But when you pitch this tent, there's no foundation to it. The foundation is the ground or the sand or whatever's under it. And the fact that it has no foundation tells you that it's not permanent. Because if I'm going to build a foundation under the tent, I'm not going to move it next month. So when I build, construct a tent, when I raise a tent with no foundation, that's giving me a message in my senses, this is a temporary location. This is not my permanent home. Now, they may stay in that same location for months or years on end, but they're still only in a tent. And Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, the patriarchs, although they were in the land God promised them, they lived in that land in a temporary dwelling. You with me so far? Okay, now let's go over and look in verse 13. These all died not having received the promises. Well, wait a minute. This is talking about faith where people receive promises. Well, they received the promise of the promised land, but the ultimate promise they were looking for they hadn't received yet. These all died in faith not having received the promises, 
but having seen them from afar. Remember, faith allows you to see something with a different set of eyes that's not looking just down here, but that's looking up there, that's looking into your future. Having seen the promises from afar, we're assured of them. And this is what faith does. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It gives you a confidence. And I'm reading an old book on prayer by Ian Bounds called The Necessity of Prayer. It's a great book. It starts by saying the foundation of all prayer is faith. Because if you don't, we're going to, verse, verse 6 in here, which we, don't, we skipped over, says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For in order to come to God, you must believe two things. You must believe two things by faith. That He exists. Why does it take faith to believe He exists? Because you can't see Him. It doesn't take faith to believe I exist because you can see me. But it does take faith to believe God exists because He's in a different realm. He's in a realm your senses can't detect. You can't see Him. You can't hear Him unless He does something supernaturally. So it takes faith to have confidence that He's really there. And the second thing is that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him, that He'll answer your prayers. That He's not just there, but He cares and He wants to answer your requests. So it takes faith to pray. Well, it doesn't take faith to pray. It takes faith to believe you're getting an answer, which is what God requires in order to answer your prayer. All right. Verse 14. Well, let me finish. Let me read this again. They were assured... They were assured of the promises and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now Abraham was a man God chose to give that promised land to. But even though God gave that land to him, his confession of his mouth was that he was a stranger, a sojourner. He was a temporary resident of this earth. Why? Because his ultimate eyes, his ultimate hope was not on that promised land. His ultimate eyes and ultimate hope was on something else. Well, what was it on? Let's take a look. Verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they're seeking a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they'd come out of they would have had opportunity to return. Boy, is there a powerful principle in that. Be very careful what you're looking towards. This is why it is so important to develop the habit of being thankful. So important to develop the habit, the habit of being thankful. Because when we're not thankful and we're feeling sorry for ourselves, we're looking backwards. We're looking at what we don't have. And this principle says if they kept looking backwards to Egypt, they would have had opportunity to return. And what this is talking about here is not looking back into the world. Because Satan is always trying to draw you back into the world that you were saved out of. The very first commandment in Deuteronomy 20 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And all the time they were being wooed as they went through the journey, they were being wooed. When they complained, what did they say they wanted to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. And what did they remember? Oh, the leeks and the onions and all the good things we had to eat in Egypt. Yeah, and they seemed to forget about the stripes on their back from the taskmasters. They seemed to forget about the fact that they couldn't control their destiny. They seemed to fact about why did they want to get out of there to begin? They forgot all of that. And what happened is 
God had to do some things because otherwise they would have returned. And the principle of that is if you don't keep your eyes on God and you don't stay thankful, you can have an opportunity to return back into the world. So it's so important what you keep looking at, that we keep looking at God, at the things of God. We keep looking at this word. We keep talking about our hope. We keep talking about faith. We keep talking about who we are in Christ because that keeps our eyes and our confession on him and on the future that we have. Very powerful verse in Revelation that we know well that's been coming back to me lately because there's a part of that we tend to forget. It says they overcame him in Revelation 12 by the blood of the Lamb. And the second part is the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb was the part he played. The word of our testimony is our confession of Christ. But it's a continual confession of Christ. Not a confession of what's wrong. Not a confession of what the devil's doing. A confession of Christ and of the hope that's set before us. We're going to have to talk sometime this year about confession. Because it's, you know, there was a period of time in the, third, in the 80s and in the early 90s where there was a whole lot of teaching on confession. Some of it just got a little extreme, but we kind of went the other direction. It was just, so people are saying anything they want. But the Word is full of all kinds of scriptures about the things that come out of our mouth. And they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. That's his part. By the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life to the death. They weren't trying to hold on to this life because they were not, their, their security was not in this world. And this is the danger. Is Satan wants to build us, our lives in a structure where our dependence and our security and our well-being is our job and even our family and our house and our car and all of those things. And if I don't have a, the latest this and all of this, what happens if we lose all those things? What, if happens, what happens if you're like Job? You lose everything but God one day. Now, Job had some issues that came out of his confession in the process, but the one thing he never did, he would not curse God. His wife said, just, I mean, she didn't last the chapter. <laughs> Curse God and die. That was, her, that was her advice. But he couldn't do it. And whether it's theologically correct or not, Job's faith was, even if you slay me, I'm still going to love you. If I lost everything. So what's your security in? It's a good question to ask ourselves. What are you building your life on? What am I building my life on? What are we building this church on? What are we built on? What's your hope in? What's your security in? Notice they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's a city that has foundations. A city that has foundations. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I love 2 Corinthians because, I mean, Paul is real. It starts out by Paul basically saying, I think you need to know some of the stuff I've gone through 
because I went through some tough stuff in Asia. He said, I despaired at one point even of my own life. He wanted to give up and die. You ever felt that way? You just, I've had it. I've had, and what it was was Satan was buffeting. If you get into chapter 11 and 12, he talks about Satan buffeting. Every time he tried to open his mouth and preach the gospel, there was opposition there. They tried to stone him. They put him in jail. They laughed at him. They threw him out of town. He caused riots, and he had to rescue him. They let him down in a basket. It was, I remember reading somewhere of a bishop in an established church who just finished reading the book of Acts, and he says, I'm very concerned about myself. He said, I just finished reading Paul's story, and everywhere Paul went, they tried to stone him, kill him, arrest him, and put him in jail. He says, everywhere I go, they serve me tea. I wonder what's wrong with what I'm doing when I'm so popular that everybody in the world wants to invite me to tea. Is it because we've built our security and our hope in the things of this world? If so, it's going to get shaken. It's going to get shaken. Let's pick up here in, uh, in verse, verse 8. That's a good place. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. In other words, we're having a rough time. Things are coming against us, but they're not stopping us. Paul was like a weeble. Remember weebles? Anybody old enough to remember weebles? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. For those of you who are so young, you don't know what a weeble is. It was this wooden thing, I think, and then there were some plastic blow-up ones where there were, there were the narrow top and a large bottom that had sand in them. And, and, and a face painted on and you could push it and it would go back up but it always came back up because the, the center of gravity oh this is good the center of gravity was on the bottom now what's your center of gravity on? are your center of gravity on Christ and on the heavenly city or is it on things of this world are you top heavy so that if you get knocked over you stay down but they kept they could push Paul down but he came right back up again they push him down but he came right back up again Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal bodies. For we, for, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal body. So death is working in us, but life is working in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. There's that confession again. We believe and therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace having spread through many may cause the thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Because of that, we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged, and if we get discouraged, we don't quit. Even though our outward man is perishing, even though we're going through all this trouble, all these circumstances, even though we've been beaten, even though we're getting older, even though things may not work the way they used to work, even though what used to be north is going south. Yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. You know who you really are is not who you see in the mirror. That's not the real you. This is your earth suit. When they go out into outer space, they have to wear a 
spacesuit. Why? Because they're a human body in, in foreign atmosphere. And in that atmosphere, they can't survive in this human body because this human body was meant to survive in this atmosphere. So they got to put on a suit that's designed so that they can function there. You are a, once you come to Christ, you are a spirit man or woman, spirit being, born out of God. The word born again not only means born a second time, but it means born from above. God's breathed his life into you. You are a child of God on the inside of you. God's put his spirit on the inside of you. Your inner man is an eternal being. And that inner man will never die. You'll change location of your residence, but it will never die. This is why when we come to the end of a wonderful funeral like this at a burial site, and we quote the scripture in Romans 15, death, where is your sting? There's no sting to death for a Christian. This body is your earth suit that allows your spirit man to function in this foreign atmosphere. And when it's done with it, it just takes it off. And you're free of it. So death has no sting to a Christian if you're in Christ. Look at this. I love this. Verse 17. The New American Standard said it this way, for this momentary light affliction. I mean, you just read the stuff he went through. Walks into a city to preach the gospel and they bring him out and stone him to death. Disciples come, lay hands on him, he raises him up, he goes back into the city again. At one point they plotted to kill him and they got to let him out of the side of the city in a basket. In another city they cause a riot when he opens his mouth to speak. In fact, at one point, the disciples asked him, would you please go back to, Tro- to, to Troas for a while? And it says, when he left and went back home, things, peace came. Because he was just causing trouble wherever he went by preaching. He goes on somewhere else and says, you know, I was three days, I was in this ship in a sea three times. Left for dead, beaten, more than Christ was beaten. And he calls it momentary light affliction. Well, momentary is a comparative terms in time. That's a moment in time to our normal experience. But scientists could break that snapping of my finger down into millions of a second, in which case that moment is a long time. So time is relative. To some of you, this just seems like this message has been very quick and gone past. Some of it's been long evenings. <laughs> and yet it's by time actually the same amount. It's a different experience. So momentary to some is different than it is to others. But Paul's not looking at it in terms of 50, 60, and 70 years. Paul's looking at the time of his affliction in terms of eternity. Do you understand whatever you're going through? And I don't mean to demean it or lessen it. Whatever it is, in terms of eternity, it's nothing. It's nothing. Whatever we have to go through for Christ, whatever we have to go to please Him, whatever we have to go to be obedient, whatever we have to go to to be pleasing to Him is momentary. And then the second thing he says is light. Those beatings were light. Why? Compared to something. Look what he compares it to. This momentary light affliction is earning something for me. 
For this momentary light affliction is working for us, earning for us a far more exceeding and eternal, that's a length of time, weight, that's a weightiness of glory. So Paul says, I'm being faithful to the Lord. I'm being faithful to do what I'm called to do, regardless of the consequences, regardless of how hard it seems, because I'm not comparing it to you and you and you. I'm not comparing it to what everybody else is going through. I'm measuring this against the eternal reward that's going to come. And the times I go through sometimes when I can get so frustrated or sometimes even discouraged and say, Lord, you know, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm ready to quit. I just, you know, the pressure gets so great. The one thing that always comes back to me. But I'm going to stand before my Lord someday and give an account. And it's not one of fear. I'm going to account for whether I did what I was called to do. And at that moment, I don't care what I got to go through. I want to stand before him and hear those words. Well done. Good and fit. Because to hear those words from him. To hear those words, I don't know whatever rewards there are, but to hear those words from him. When you hear those words from him, everything else you went through just fades into the background. And that's what we have to keep in mind. That's what we have to keep in mind. There is an eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us. Whether your rewards are great or they're few, they're still an eternal weight And Paul learned to walk by faith. So whatever he physically was going through, whatever he emotionally was going through, his spiritual eyes were always on that eternal reward. Let's quickly go over as we close to chapter 5. Oh, verse 18. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Now, I can understand how you can look not at things are seen, you just close your eyes. I'm not looking at things that can be seen. You. Because my eyes are closed. But how do you look at things that are not seen? With the eyes of faith. Because what faith is, is the substance, the proof of things hoped for, the evidence of things you can't see with your natural eyes. So while we look not at the things that are seen, while we look not at the circumstances of this life, while we look not at what our body feels like, while we consider not how the checkbook looks, while we consider not what the obstacles look like in our way, but we look at the things that are not seen, the promises of the Word of God, the rewards that this talks about, that your eternal, your eternal destiny is not here. This is just a momentary time where you're serving the Lord here and being prepared for your service there. So it's important what you're looking at. We need to every once in a while ask ourselves, I can tell you this, if you're discouraged and you're depressed, you're not looking at the right things. Because you can't look at the promises of God by faith and be discouraged and depressed. Because it's full of rich promises. The problem is we have trouble seeing them when we're discouraged. Because all our eyes look at is what's wrong. So lift up your eyes. And see where your help comes from. Lift up your eyes off of your circumstances. Lift up your eyes off of the pain. Lift up your eyes off of whatever it is you're going through. And lift up your eyes to the future and the hope that's laid before you by faith. 
We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Chapter 5 goes on with this idea. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, that's the body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that's not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's our heavenly body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with the habitation which is from heaven. This is Paul's testimony. For indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Notice that. Paul saying mortality is different from life. Mortality is this life we know. But this is not the real life. So Paul tells the great hope of a Christian is that this mortality, what we consider life, is going to be swallowed up by what's really life. You understand eternal life is not a period of time. Jesus said, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But people that go to hell live everlasting also. So everlasting is not referring to how long. It's referring to the level and quality of life. Because the word there is the Greek word zoe, which is a high level of life. It's the level of life where God lives it. And do you know that's in you right now? That's in you right now by the Holy Spirit. That's in you right now. So even if you're tired or worn down, that life is still in you right now. We just don't tap into it very often because we're so moved by how our outward body feels. We're so controlled by our feelings and by our emotions and by circumstances and how things look, which Paul defines as a carnal Christian. controlled and moved and decide things based on what we see. That's all the world has to go by. But we have an eternity to go by. We have God's word to go by, God's promises to go by. And this is why, and we'll bring it to a close here, this is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 when he's talking about at a certain stage of his life, he's talking about whether to stay here or go, whether to die. To, uh, to, to the world... Death is an end. But you cannot have a glorious celebration that we had in dinner today. For a man and, and the family is rejoicing and we're singing and we're not faking it because there's no hope. Their absolute confidence, as is ours, that our dear brother Link Massa today is in his reward, the eternal weight of glory. But not only that, but those of us in Christ will see him again. And beyond that, we will see face to face our precious Lord and Savior whom we sang about earlier. We won't have to see him dimly through a veil, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, but we'll see him the way it ends up by saying face to face. And then we'll know him as he is. And the neat thing is, First John says, we'll see that we're just like him. We'll see him as he is and realize that we are made in his image. We are just like him. And that's our hope. So my brother and sister, as we close tonight, lift your eyes. Ask yourself this question every day. What am I building my life on? What am I being moved by? What am I thinking about all the time? What am I talking about all the time? Am I talking about the things of this life? Because the more you talk about something and the more you think about it, the bigger it becomes in your mind. And the church went through a period of time 
a generation or so ago when all the songs were about heaven and all the songs were about glory and it was wonderful but they became so focused on heaven that they were no worth I won't say no but they weren't as concerned with earthly things and we have an assignment here but we've gone to the other side of the pendulum and we've become so earthly focused that we have no heavenly future in mind and it's that hope it's that hope it's that hope it's that confidence that gives us the perspective to evaluate what's really important in life and what's not important in life. It's that perspective that keeps us focused and keeps us going on through the end. It's that perspective that helps us go through the, dif- the difficulties and the disappointments because whatever how things work out here, this is not my home. I'm living in a tent here. This body Paul refers to as a tent, a temporary dwelling. But there's waiting for me in that city that has a foundation, an eternal, an eternal, healthy, strong, vibrant body. Jesus came and showed a prototype off when he was raised from the dead. And that waits you and me. Remain faithful to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word gives us hope. We thank you that your word gives us strength. Father, we come to you tonight and confess that so much of our life is consumed and the enemy works hard to do it and we let him are consumed by the cares and worries of this life and this world and once we doing that we begin to give them place in our heart that's beyond what you've called us to give so often father we've taken our eyes or maybe not even seen the hope that is set before us so father we join with the apostle Paul I join with him and pray for Faith Christian Center here, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus, and that we would might come to know the glory of the inheritance, the glory, that weightiness, the reality of the inheritance that we have together with all the saints. We thank you that you hear our prayer tonight. We look for the answer. In Jesus' name, amen.